Well, let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness in giving us your word, giving us direction, giving us instruction on how to love you, how to walk with you, how to honor you and praise you. Thank you for the revelation that is in it of what you have done for us. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It is beautiful. It is lovely. It is holy. It is good. And we thank you for it. May it penetrate our hearts, impact our lives, God, by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are re-entering Deuteronomy. We were in Deuteronomy back in uh, fall of 2020, and we are going to spend 11 of the next 12 weeks here in Deuteronomy covering chapters 7 through 13. Um, Back in fall of last year, we covered six chapters, and you might wonder, well, why six chapters and then seven chapters when there's 34 chapters in Deuteronomy? And uh, as we have communicated before, our commitment to you as as your elders is the expository preaching of the Word and to give you a balanced diet of the breadth of the Scriptures. Um, So you have a full-orb view of the whole counsel of God about every two years. Um, In order to do this, we cover the larger books like Deuteronomy and Isaiah is another large book we've been going through on and off um, in smaller chunks so that we can hit all the different genres of Scripture during the two-year cycle. So if the Lord tarries, we will probably finish Deuteronomy in about 2028. Mark your calendars. Well, first, let's, uh, let's do another quick overview of the book. Uh, Deuteronomy is part of the section of Scripture known as the Torah. This section of the Bible is also called the Pentateuch, which literally means five books, referring to the five books of Moses, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books are called Torah or Law because they put into writing the Law of God, which was first revealed in Genesis and in greater detail at Mount Sinai, and then through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We then come to Deuteronomy, which transliterated means second law. The use of this title arose based on a mistranslation of the phrase, a copy of this law, from Deuteronomy 17-18. So Deuteronomy is a misnomer because it is not a second law, but it is rather a copy of the law that was declared in the previous books of Moses and is his explanation, his exposition, and his application of the law. Now, to avoid chronological confusion, for those of you who have been with us, through Ezra, this is taking place about 1400 B.C., about a thousand years before Ezra. So we're getting in our time capsule and we're going back here, backwards a thousand years. Um, there is no Jerusalem. There is no temple yet. Um, Israel is about to enter the promised land for the first time. They have been wandering in the desert for nearly 40 years since the miraculous events um, of deliverance from Egypt, as well as what happened on Sinai. This is because those Israelites, 40 years earlier, did not have faith in the Lord. Even though God had delivered them from the most powerful nation on earth, They did not believe, and so that generation of Israelites, save Caleb and Joshua, had perished in the wilderness. And so, with a whole new generation of Israelites 
Preparing to enter the promised land, Moses stands on the banks of the Jordan to deliver a sermon. Yes, this is a sermon from Moses, a long one. Not as long. This sermon will not be as long as that one was. You can be thankful for that. The main purpose of this address by Moses was covenantal renewal. The book is actually composed in the format of a covenant or a legal contract. A covenant was a binding agreement made between two or more parties. So here on the plains of Moab, a covenantal ceremony is taking place as this new generation of Israelites renews the covenant with God that their forefathers had made at Sinai to commit themselves to the Lord as his people and vow to uphold their covenantal duties and responsibilities. In this covenantal renewal, the Lord is declaring what his identity and role is in this covenantal union and what Israel's identity and role are, along with the terms and conditions, the promises and penalties of this covenant. Now, those first aspects I mentioned, the identities of the parties involved in this covenant and their relationship to one another are the foundational elements to understanding the covenant and therefore understanding the book of Deuteronomy. That's why these are reiterated throughout the book. We will see them many times as we go throughout Deuteronomy in the next eight years. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it sounds difficult. We see these uh, identities and this relationship clearly here in chapter 7 if we begin in verse 6 of chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So here we see these identities, the Lord and the Lord's chosen people, Israel. Notice that God is called the Lord. You might remember that this is actually a name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Also notice the use of your God. He's not just a covenant-keeping God. He addresses himself to Israel as your God. Identifying himself in relationship with them. Yahweh told Abraham, I will be God to you and your offspring after you. And that is exactly what he has been and what he is to them now. And it's this, and it's his identity and relationship to them that then forms their identity. It says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. The Lord has declared Israel to be his people, his treasured possession. That is who they are. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Their relationship to the Lord is what defines them. Their relationship... <coughs> To the Lord is what defines them. Not skin color or ethnicity, political affiliation or gender. They find their identity in relationship to God and what he declares about them. What God declares to be true is the truth. 
Everybody nod your head. What God declares to be true is the truth. They are holy to Him. That is, they're set apart as His people. They are chosen by Him to be His treasured possession. Listen. Listen to the beauty of that language. A treasured possession. The Lord treasures them like the greatest of all treasures. Think of your greatest treasure that you have. He treasures them. This is the Lord's affection for His people. And the covenant instills in the people of Israel this identity as chosen, as set apart, as treasured. Mm. He says in Leviticus, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Now, this is all well and good for them. But what in the heck does this have to do with us? To the New Testament church. After all, we are religiously based people spread throughout the earth rather than a religio-socio-political people in a certain land. We're also under a different covenant, the New Covenant. How then does this law given to Israel nearly 3,500 years ago relate to us? These responsibilities and duties, how do God's relations with Israel relate to his church? It's a good question. At least I thought it was. Was that a good question? As Israel was chosen to be his treasured possession, so are we. As Israel was chosen to be his treasured possession, so are we. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do, do those words sound familiar? That whole chosen, holy possession thing? It does. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Mm. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Titus 2, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a what? A people for his own possession. You are his treasured possession. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Ephesians 1. And this is where our application of the book of Deuteronomy derives from. Israel, as God's chosen people, serves as a picture for us, as God's eternally chosen people. Israel, as God's chosen people then, is a type and shadow illustrating for us many facets of what it looks like to be the church, God's chosen people now. The main purpose of the book was how Israel, as God's chosen people, were to live and stand firm under the covenant in the midst of the place that God had called them. The subtitle of the book could have been Living as God's Chosen People. Well, 
Who else then does this apply to? Hmm. All y'all. All God's chosen people. The book of Deuteronomy is wisdom, guidance, and instruction for standing firm as God's chosen people. You see how I fit standing firm in there? <laughs> we, the church, like Israel of Old Testament, are chosen. We are set apart. We are a treasured possession of our covenant God. He is our God, and we are his people. It's in 2 Corinthians. For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. For we are the temple of the living God. We. For God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And it is from this relationship to him that we are to derive our identity as well. Our standing before God as his children is the primary source of our identity. Everyone standing before God is the primary source of their identity. Our modern culture and society attempt to shift this to several other factors. Ethnicity, class, gender, nationality, political affiliation, even sexual preferences or other inward affections or, or emotions. But we are not defined by these attributes or feelings. But we are not defined by these attributes or feelings. Our identification comes from God and what he says. Our identification comes from God and what he says. We are all created in the image of God with equal dignity and worth. And we are all either in covenant relationship with God in Christ or not. If you are trusting Christ, you are God's treasured possession. He is your God. And you are His treasured possession. That is who you are. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is, in, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Moses now explains the nature of this covenantal relationship between the Lord and his people. It is not because of who they are, but because of who he is. The Lord did not choose the people of Israel because they were a great nation in any way, shape, or form. The reason for God choosing them was not something within them. It's not some inherent quality which then merited God's choosing them. But it is because of the Lord that they have been chosen to be his people. They did not choose him. He chose them. It is not because of who they are, 
but because of who he is. He is keeping an oath that he swore to their fathers. Well, why did he choose their fathers? Was it because they were a more numerous people? No. He chose to love their fathers and make this covenant with them, not because of who they were, but because of who he is. Catching the theme here? He chose them out of all the peoples of the earth to redeem them from the house of slavery, not because of who they were, not because they were lovely or deserving of love, but because he is God. There was no merit or worth in Israel that led God to establish his covenant with them, nor is there any merit or worth in us. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Second Timothy, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Mm, savor those words. Romans, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He chose us out of all the peoples of the earth to redeem us from the house of slavery to sin, not because of who we were, but what? Because of who He is. We were not lovely. We were not deserving of love. But He loved us. And He has guaranteed the salvation of all who trust in Him by sealing this covenant, this new covenant, with his blood. All is of God's sovereign grace, folks. All is of God's sovereign grace. The Lord is the covenant God, the sovereign, who in his grace and mercy gives his love to a people without merit. Verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This has to be one of the most astonishing lines ever written in religious literature. What is the essence of the covenant? Love. Love. This covenant is structured, formed, sustained by, and founded upon a loving relationship between the Lord and His people. The Lord says time and again, I will be your God and love you. Deuteronomy verse 12 of this chapter, which we won't get to, Bill will next week, says the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and steadfast love that he swore to your fathers, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. And what does he require in, term, in, in return for this love? That they love him. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him? You can't make this stuff up, folks. Here is the sovereign, almighty, omnipotent ruler of the universe that has absolute, unquestioned authority to dispose with his people as he pleases, to demand of his people whatever he desires. He is the sovereign. They have no right or entitlement to anything, but are at the sheer mercy of God. And what does he do? He loves them. And what does he require of them? They love Him. And He loves you. And He loves you. And what does He ask in return? For you to love Him. Inconceivable! Was that close? I know, I know. That's a tough ask to love God, isn't it? I mean, to have to love the most lovely entity in existence, to have to pleasure in the one who is the origin and apex of all pleasure. Oh man, I have to do that? To have to delight in the most beautiful, majestic, delightful being that there is? To have to glory in the quintessence of glory? Are you kidding me? What better command could ever be given, folks? What better command? Love the loveliest being in all of existence. He says, I want you to love me to the uttermost. Because the more you love me, the greater your delight will be. Inconceivable. Now let's pause here and ruminate for just a moment. The God of the universe has just told you that he loves you unconditionally. It's not because you have somehow merited that love because you haven't. All of your actions have been filled with hatred and guile, dishonoring him. But he has set his love upon you anyway. Out of his love, he has saved you and delivered you from your slavery to sin. And for this priceless covenantal love for you, he calls you to love him in return. To love the altogether lovely, the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000. What do you now need? Direction on how to love him, right? Well, how, how? How? You've told me to love you. How? We need instruction on what loving God looks like practically, don't we? Everybody shake your head because if you're not, you need to. How can I live a life that honors this God who has saved me, that, that makes much of him? that shows forth his character and attributes to the world. How can I love him? You see, love is motivation, but it is not self-interpreting direction. We don't get to define what love for God or love for others looks like because we are sinful and will distort and ultimately corrupt such definition. 
We once again need His love and grace to show us what love for Him and what love for others looks like. And in His love and His grace, He has. Hmm. It is found in His commandments. He didn't just say that. It is found in His law. It's right there in the passage with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Love is what the law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills. This concept is critical for our understanding because the next 19 chapters are filled with these commands. We have to grasp our relationship to these commandments now because we're entering into 11 weeks of them. You know, whenever we journey back into the Old Testament books that contain portions of the law, get a little apprehensive. Kind of get that feeling. This is because of the possibility of some of us responding wrongly to its contents and nature. There is vast potential for misunderstanding the law and the Christian's relationship to it. And yet here we are in Deuteronomy preaching on the law because the law is holy, righteous, and good. Who said that? That was, that was Paul. You read that other verse this morning in Galatians? That was up there for communion. That was Paul too. Paul said the law is holy, righteous, and good. And David proclaimed this. He said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That doesn't often seem to be our impression of the law, does it? Many Christians tend to view the law negatively. Now, I think this is for several reasons. All reasons that derive from a misunderstanding of it. If we view the law negatively, there is a good chance that we have divorced the law of God from the person of God. Both the law and the gospel are an expression of God. Both the law and the gospel are an expression of God. Both come from God's nature. How can we then view one as gracious and the other one as graceless? Because we have separated the law of God from the gracious God who gave it to us. Now, there's a reason we tend to do this, and that's because we tend to make the assurance of our salvation conditional upon our obedience to the law. Mm. Yeah, I heard, mm. mm-hmm. The worst mistake that, we, that can be made is for us to begin to think that our salvation is somehow contingent upon how well we are obeying the commandments. 
to think that God will hold up some kind of measuring stick imprinted with the laws and the commandments and save us or condemn us based upon how well we measure up. If that were the case, we all need to leave now. We'd all be condemned. No one, and I mean no one, would measure up. Not then and not now. The law in and of itself, devoid of the grace of God, kills. That's what we're afraid of, isn't it? That part of the that is devoid of the grace of God, but it's not. We're just trying to make it that way. It's not good news. It only condemns, not as a result of anything inherent within it, but because of the evil that is inherent within us. To tie our salvation to obedience to the law would be a massive misunderstanding of both the covenant and the law, even for Old Testament Israel. The purpose of the law was never to earn their way into God's love. Salvation has always been based on grace alone through faith alone. Yes, always been based on grace alone through faith alone. The law was always meant to be a means of grace to its recipients. Let me say that one again. The law was always meant to be a means of grace to its recipients, both then and now. Mm. Some of us squirming in our seats. For those outside the covenant relationship with God, it was a means of grace to cause them to recognize their utter depravity and to despair of trying to attain salvation through their works. Its, it's, its unattainable standard revealed their sinful condition and need to call upon God's mercy and grace. That in itself is what? That's a good thing, isn't it? That is so gracious. What has the law done in this instance? It has turned the unbeliever to utter reliance upon God, to God's grace. It was a tutor that led people to Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 3, he was a tutor. Now that is one dimension of the law. Yet the law is not one dimensional. We tend to carry this out of the covenant view of the law into our covenant relationship with the Lord. And still view it as a standard to be attained, as a tool of judgment. We tend to assess our covenant standing by how well we are obeying the law as believers, as his people. Yet the law was meant and is meant as a rule of life for those under the covenant. Not as a mountain to be ascended to gain entrance into the covenant, nor to stay within the covenant. The former view of the law introduces the effects of a relationship that has been established. The latter creates the conditions under which a relationship will be established. But the relationship has already been established. He is their God and they are His people. Identity. Remember identity. The Lord has already set His love upon them chosen them, set them apart, and delivered them. 
Follow the events here. God's love and covenant and their identity as God's chosen people are expressed first. Notice that? Followed by the law. And 40 years prior, the giving of the law came after, Mount Sinai came after the deliverance of God's people. Deliverance comes first, followed by how those delivered should then live because they have been delivered. Deliverance comes first, followed by how those delivered should then live because they have been delivered. The law is a means of grace for those under his covenant love because it shows them how they can express their love back to him. And the people's love is expressed through obedience to the law. And likewise, hatred for the Lord is expressed through disobedience. You see that concept clearly communicated here in the passage. Again in verse 9, with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. You see, the acts are associated with the heart's disposition. Acts of disobedience with hatred. The disposition of the unbeliever, of the one who hates God, is that they do not want to obey. They have no desire to obey because they hate him rather than love him. And we see a desire for obedience to his commands accompanies a heart of love for him. Following his commands are acts of love to the God who first loved him, them. The love is the basis of the obedience. Obedience to these commands were to be their righteous response in faith to God's making them his chosen people. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him. And such is our responsibility as recipients of his covenant love as well. One of the primary manifestations of our love to him is also through obedience to his commands. You might remember these words. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Who said that? Jesus. If you love me, see the love? Then you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. See how the keeping of the commandments comes out of the love? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so obedience to God's commands is to be our righteous response in faith to God's having made us his chosen people. Keeping the law is our loving response to God's grace. Now we need to pause and stick a pin 
in this right here. Because as I turn to the application of the law for us as New Testament believers, several questions need to be addressed. Yes, I like questions. Questions. Questions about what exactly is meant by the law. How does it differ for us today from God's chosen people during the time of Moses? And how does it apply to God's chosen people under the new covenant? Am I saying that as New Testament Christians, we are bound to obey all of the Old Testament laws in their entirety? Everybody say, no. Good job. Everybody say, no. Come on. Everybody say, thank you. We can still pick up a football without receiving capital punishment. Or we can watch football on Sundays. And we can still watch Lord of the Rings on Sundays, all three of them, or every other day of the week. But why? My goal here is simply to clarify what the distinctions in the law are, why they are there, and then to show us how we can apply the Old Testament moral laws to our lives today. So that being said, there are two types of laws That the Lord gave to Israel, moral and ceremonial. Both of these laws applied to Israel under the Old Covenant. They were obligated to keep all of them. The moral laws were, well, just that, moral. They pertained to what was right and wrong, to loving God and loving your neighbor. There were laws derived from moral principles that were rooted in God's moral nature. These were commands regarding such things as sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy and drunkenness and orgies and things like these. Moral laws and principles do not change because they are rooted in God's moral nature. God's unchanging moral nature. And the ceremonial laws, well, they were laws that taught about or symbolized a separation between Israel as God's chosen nation and the pagan nations. These included laws about dietary restrictions, the handling of clean and unclean animals, baldness, good for some of us, personal hygiene, stuff like that. There was nothing morally wrong with any of these things. They were simply meant to distinguish Israel from the rest of the world. There were other ceremonial laws that taught about or symbolized the coming salvation in Christ. These ceremonial laws included sacrifices and offerings, purification and holy days. All of these ceremonial laws were for a specific people during a specific time in history. All of these ceremonial laws for a specific people during a specific time in history. They were intended for a body of people redeemed from Egypt while they lived in the land with a view to the coming of the Messiah. These ceremonial laws 
are no longer applicable because of the work of Christ. He fully and finally fulfilled all of the sacrificial laws in his death on the cross. There is therefore now no longer any need for people to sacrifice, as Hebrews 10 makes clear. And he also united Jew and Gentile into one through the cross. There is no longer either Jew or Greek, for all are one in Christ. There is therefore now no longer any need for people to distinguish between Jew and Gentile. The abrogation of these laws by God being clearly articulated to Peter in his vision in Acts 10. If you guys want a better explanation, because there is a better explanation, um, Dr. Lyle did a sermon back in July of 2020 that uh, does a great job of breaking it down even further. So you guys can always go on Sermon Audio and look up his message, because that was a great message, and I stole a lot of stuff from it. (laughs) Now, many of the laws that we will encounter as we journey through these chapters in Deuteronomy have peculiar elements to them. That is, even though they contain moral principles that do not change, these moral principles are provided in the context of rather unique circumstances, particular to the Old Testament. And so it takes us some discernment to discover the moral principles in the commandment and then to be able to apply them to a modern context. So, Let's look at the one in our passage this morning. It will look familiar because we took a look at it just two weeks ago in Ezra. I did not plan that. I wish I could say I had. It's the initial prohibition against intermarrying that we discussed back then. Let's look at the whole thing. Verse 1 of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So what's the moral principle of these commands? Is it to run out and kill your neighbors who aren't Christians? Everybody say, no. Good job. Well done. Is it to go to your neighbor's house and find all their non-Christian items and burn them? Oh, somebody who did this. Everybody say, no. First, we need to find the moral principles being communicated here. We saw it two weeks ago. It was found in the words in verse 4, for they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. These commands are given to prevent idolatry. This is a specific application of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or bow down to them or serve them. Actually, all of the commandments that follow are really case laws or specific applications of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, they really are. Those Ten Commandments that were first declared at Sinai were reiterated back in chapter 5. But those commandments are fairly general principles, aren't they? What do they look like in more specific instances? When the rubber meets the road in real life for Israel. That's what these commandments in the book of Deuteronomy are. This command that we just read and all that it entails is to keep the Israelites from idolatry, from breaking the first and second commandments. What was the specific application to that general moral principle in this given situation? The situation is clearly articulated in in it, isn't it? When they have militarily defeated these nations and are entering their lands, what was the best way for the Israelites to keep away from idolatry as they were entering into the promised land filled with myriad of foreign peoples and their gods? By destroying them and their idols. By not intermarrying with them. That's how. It's really that simple. Do not worship other gods. And so, let's remove those things that will most lend themselves to the people committing that idolatry. The moral principle does not change for us today. It doesn't. We are still not to worship other gods, are we? Good job. Well done. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Reconciliation to the one true God. But we're not a socio-political nation getting ready to occupy foreign lands and militarily defeat foreign nations, are we? If you say yes, So what are our specific applications to the general moral principle? What we need to do is look at our modern context and apply the same unchanging moral principle to it. Is that that hard? It can't be that hard. What things might cause us to esteem other things as greater than God? One of those is obviously not being in a romantic relationship with an unbeliever just like it was for Israel. Don't do it. We talked about that last week, didn't we? That unbeliever can have a massive influence on our worship of the only true God. So there's one application. There's one way that you can honor God and keep this commandment. But that's only one. There are others. What does it look like today in our modern context to break down dash in pieces, chop down and burn those things which tempt us to idolatry? Take that one home and chew on it. None of us are probably going to like that answer, are we? Let's get rid of those things, folks. Let's burn down those altars. What is the New Testament application to this moral principle for us today? That is the question. The goal once again, is obedience born of love. He loved us 
and saved us. And so we desire to love him in return through honoring him by our lifestyle. How do we do that? By living in accordance with the moral law which reflects his nature. We are to love him by keeping his commandments because he is our God. He is not our God because we keep his commandments. Say that one again. We are to love him by keeping his commandments because he is our God. He is not our God because we keep his commandments. I should probably have all of you repeat that back to me. But that would be weird. So, (laughs) your failure to follow his commands has no bearing on your justification. The only thing that matters is whether or not you are in union with Christ. The only thing that matters is that you are in union with Christ. Jesus Christ died for all of the sins, past, present, and future, of those who trust in Him. For those who love Him, the covenant in His blood guarantees that a sufficient sacrifice has been made and no further sacrifice is necessary, ever. Why do I continue to beat this drum? Same old, same old, isn't it, from up here? Same Because in the upcoming weeks, as we begin making our way through these many laws, there's a pretty good chance that some of you will begin to struggle with your assurance. Don't do that. You will begin to compare your past or present sins with these laws. You'll see how you have fallen short and begin to despair of your salvation. Your assurance is not in your obedience, nor in how strong your faith is. It is not in how many or how few sins you have committed, nor is it in how faithful you have been or will be. Your assurance is ever and only in Jesus Christ in who Christ is and what Christ has done for you, in God's grace, not in your works, in His covenant faithfulness, not in your faithfulness. Give me a louder amen than that. Your assurance is ever and only in Jesus Christ, not in how much faith you can get, how much faith that you can show. How many actions, how many commandments you can obey. It's not in you. It is in Christ, in Christ alone. The law neither functions as a ladder to be climbed, a standard to be met, nor a ruler by which to be measured. But it serves to sketch the pattern of life desired for God's covenant people. Say that one once again, too. The law neither functions as a ladder to be climbed, a standard to be met, nor a ruler by which to be measured. That's the one we most often do, isn't it? Let me hold up this ruler and see. And then we question 
Your assurance is not in your works, folks, ever. It is in Christ. Christ alone. The law is given as a sketch of the pattern of life that God desires for us to live as His covenant people. People characterized by a life that reflects the holiness of the God of the covenant. We reflect His character, His holiness, His glory when we walk in righteousness. And that righteousness is what is found in the law of God. It's there, whether in pattern or precept or principle, how to express our love to God is there, graciously given to us by God in the law. It's gracious. How we can be holy because He is holy and show forth that holiness of the God who has saved us. to reflect the perfections of this God, how to walk in and magnify the grace that you have been given. That is what the law contains. It's for our good. It's for our joy. It gives expression to our love. It deepens our love. This is the grace of the law because He is our God and we are His people. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to y'all training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Oh, it trains us to do that, huh? And to live self-controlled, upright, and, and godly lives in the present age. It does that, it does that. Whoa. Waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So how do we stand firm as God's chosen people? First, by living in that very identity as God's chosen people. If you are trusting Christ then you are God's child. You are God's chosen. This is your identity. It must begin there. It must begin with your identity. If you do not know that you are His, then you're not going to try to live as His, are you? Through faith in Jesus Christ, He has become your God, and you are His treasured possession. Set apart by Him, for Him. Loved by Him unto salvation, forever and ever. You are loved by Him. It's who you are. It's who you are. And your calling as God's beloved child is to love Him in return. Yes, the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000, the God who created all beauty, who is the loveliest of all lovelies, we are called to love him in return. And how do we do that? He has shown you, O oh man. He has told you how to love him. It's in the law. Obedience to the law is our calling as God's chosen people. It is our privilege as God's chosen people. It is our responsibility 
as God's chosen people. It is our delight as God's chosen people. It is the gracious gift of the Lord given to his chosen people so that we can, empowered by his grace, respond out of love for that grace. May we, with one voice and conviction, proclaim, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord, because I love you, O Lord. That is my prayer. That's been my prayer for this sermon. That we would love his law because we love him. Let's pray. Thank you for saving us, O God. Because of who you are. Wasn't dependent upon any one of us. Because you are God. We worship you right now because of that truth. You love us. I am a beloved child of God. Thank you, God, for that love. May we love you in return because of your greatness and your beauty and your loveliness. Help us to love your law. Because you are good. Your law is good. You are gracious, and your law is gracious. You are lovely, and your law is lovely. You are holy, and your law is holy. May we praise and honor you, O God, because you first love us. In Jesus' name, amen.